Okay, good morning and welcome to Ordinary Life. Ordinary Life is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church, and I am glad you are here today. Before we go any further, I want you to get a pen and paper. I'll tell you why in a minute. No, it's not that drawer. It's on the one, in the one under that. Yeah, that's where you look. Okay, get the pen and paper. Um, as you, if you get the emails from Ordinary Life, you know that we have been offering updates about the fact that we are going to reopen for in-person gathering the first Sunday in June. The information that we've been sending out is probably not accurate now since the CDC has issued new guidelines. We are following the protocols of the church. The church will be opening a couple of weeks before us. So if you want to know what those are, I'd say check the St. Paul's website. Uh, they will be doing an update of their protocol plan sometime this coming week. And as soon as that is up to date, probably won't be in time for the summary of this class that goes out on Tuesday morning. Uh, we'll have it on the website and we'll also put it in, in the email. So uh, stay tuned. Several people have asked, will the live stream continue after we go for in-person gathering? And the answer is, we've been live streaming Ordinary Life for years. Uh, I was thinking the other day about how our newest member of the steering committee, Adam Deloach, was live streaming Ordinary Life on Facebook several years ago, and we've been doing that ever since. So yes, and all of the Ordinary Life classes are available in our archives on the website. So if you want to go listen to one or to watch one, you can find the links to YouTube to do that. And also be mindful that Holly Hudley and I do a podcast every week that comes out on Thursday morning called In Between, and I uh, hope you subscribe to that. Holly is not here today because we have a special guest, which I'll tell you about in a minute, and she will not be here next Sunday either, and I have asked this gentleman, uh, Wayne Herbert, whom I jokingly refer to as our resident atheist, if he will dialogue with me. Actually, this was Wayne's idea, and I think it's a great idea to talk about how uh, we, over our disparate and different journeys, have ended up here. Wayne and I have known each other for 18 years, and so it'll be, it will be fun to do that, sort of a non-scripted dialogue about our own individual faith journey. Um, this has been an unusual Sunday because of rain and what they're moving the inside, the outside surface inside. And so our floor crew has really been busy managing that. But thanks to Tim Leatherwood and John Watson and William Budge and Olivia Watson for doing this. I, I hope that the precious time of your life that you invest here deepens your awareness and understanding of who you are, of who your neighbor is, and who sacred mystery is. Uh, and further, I want you to know, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Now, for today, uh, Wayne Herbert heard Brandon Mack in a presentation some time ago, and Wayne has done all the heavy lifting in getting Brandon here to speak to us today and then to do a dialogue. So here's why you need to pen and paper. If you have a question that you would like for Brandon to respond to, if you will text that to me at 713-594-9180, that's 713-594-9180, then um, I will get that text to, um, 
to Wayne and they, they can do it. So uh, without further ado, I am introducing you to Wayne Herbert, who is uh, going to introduce Brandon, and Brandon's going to speak, then they'll dialogue, and then we'll take it from there. Wayne? Thank you, Bill. Good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in to uh, watch the presentation this morning. Uh, as you know, um, racism has been uh, an important topic at Ordinary Life, and in particular, we have heard at length uh, issues that our own biracial couple, uh, Josh and Holly, have explained to us uh, previously. Uh, I'd like to say that racism is not a black problem, it's a white problem. Racism was created by whites and is going to have to be solved by whites. Just as a women's suffrage was not something that women could vote in, it had to be men that voted in, so it is that it's white people that are going to have to make a difference uh, to cure the racism that exists in our society. Uh, if somewhat, some of what you hear today uh, makes you feel uncomfortable, I would just ask you to just to sit with that feeling and try and understand why it makes you feel uncomfortable. Um, I'll introduce you to Brandon. His name is Brandon Mack, and here's what he had to say about himself. In addition to his day job, Brandon Mack is a community activist and a sociologist dedicated to issues related to the intersections of race, gender, and sexual orientation. He has conducted research on effeminophobia, the negativity related to effeminate gay men. His work has been featured in a GLAAD Media Award winning article and as he has presented his work at national conferences such as the National LGBTQ Task Force, Creating Change, and NBJC's Out on the Hill. He is a lead organizer with Black Lives Matter Houston, co-chapter director of New Leaders of the Council Houston. He's screening and committee and education and advocacy chair of the Houston Gay, Lesbian, Bi, and Trans Political Caucus. He is also the research coordinator for the mayor's LGBTQ advisory board. Mac graduated from Rice University with a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology and Political Science. In 2013, Mac earned a Master's in Education in Higher Education, Administration and Supervision from the University of Houston. He is currently a PhD student in the Higher Education Leadership and Policy Studies at the University of Houston. Brandon's title for his presentation today is moving from ally to accomplice, and here is what he says. Black Lives Matter is many things, and it has been perceived as many things. In this talk, Brandon with Black Lives Matter will talk about his journey in activism and what the Black Lives Matter movement is and isn't. He will also talk about how we can move to an active accomplice against racism. And with that, gentlemen and ladies, I will turn the floor over to Brandon. Thank you so much, Wayne, and thank you, Bill, and to everyone here at Ordinary Life, and good morning, Ordinary Life family. It's an honor to be here and to talk to you today about Black Lives Matter and moving from an ally to accomplice. 
So just to give you a sense of what I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to start with a little introduction about myself, go through some history lessons, we'll talk about intersectionality, Black Lives Matter, what allyship is versus accompliceship, what we can do in terms of moving from an ally to an accomplice, and then we want to open it up to Q&A and dialogue. So please feel free to send your questions in to either Wayne or to Bill, and we will try to address those questions in a dialogue. So a little bit about me. So my name is Brandon Mack, pronouns he, him, his. Um, the reason why I list out all the things that I'm involved in is because when we come into any space, we bring all of ourselves into that space. So I bring into this space a person who has been an activist for over 15 years. I've been an activist in a variety of different spaces. I have been a part of Black Lives Matter Houston since our founding in 2013. Uh, I'm also a, a graduate student. I am unapologetically black, unapologetically same gender loving, all of my intersections. So I have to acknowledge all of who I am because I bring all of myself. But also, I have to also acknowledge our privileges, and it's also important that when we go into spaces that we also acknowledge and recognize our privileges and how they intersect and interact within spaces. So I want it known that I do have male privilege, I do have cisgender privilege, I do have educational privilege, and all of those things also interact in terms of how I speak and on behalf of who I am able to speak for because we have to make sure that when we are in spaces with marginalized individuals that we don't take up that space and privilege ourselves and reinforce those marginalizations. So always make sure that you are recognizing your privileges and give space for those who are often not heard in every single room where they should be heard in every single room. So let's start off with some history. The United States of America has fundamentally had a central problem with respect to black people. And that central problem has been the devaluation of black people and the devaluation of black life. And it starts all the way from the beginning of when black people were brought to this country. We did not have a say in coming over to the United States of America generally. We were brought over through the transatlantic slave trade. When we came to this country, we were considered to be property. Over the course of history, we've gone from being property to being three-fifths of a person to receiving personhood. And even today, even though we are regarded as having personhood, we still do not have access to the same rights and privileges as everyone else in the United States. We're still dealing with voter suppression. We're still dealing with educational inequality. We're still dealing with economic inequality. And it all goes back to that fundamental problem of the fact that we have not always been valued equally as humans in the United States. That problem also connects to the problem of police brutality and the system of policing as it has been created and developed here in the United States of America. I hope you're able to see the image of the um, badge which reminds us that the first police officers in the United States were slave catchers. Those slave catchers were charged with imprisoning, mishandling, and dehumanizing black people who were running away from enslavement. So if a system starts off with not looking at black people as being equal and looking at them as being property, 
How do you think that has changed over the years? The problem is that, is that it hasn't. That fundamental start of devaluation started with the beginning of this system and has been perpetuated over the years. And so that's the reason for why you see people calling for a defunding and an abolishment of the police system because of that history and because of the perpetuation of that devaluation. So we got to remember that even though we have progressed in some ways, in many ways, we haven't progressed. And that's why we are calling for an end to these systems and a change to the way that we value ourselves and value each other with respect to solving the problem of the devaluation of black people. I want us to know that there's not a difference between these two images that you see, that they both come from the same problem. Once again, the devaluation of black life. On the left, you see a lynching and you're seeing a group of white people looking on at this lynching and not intervening. To the right, you see Derek Chauvin, who was recently convicted for the murder of George Floyd with his knee on George Floyd's neck. In both images, what you are seeing is the devaluation of black life and the lack of intervening from white people that contributes to our devaluation and our murder. Because you can see all those people in that lynching photo, none of them are intervening. None of them are taking a step to say this is wrong. They are on looking, being complicit with their silence and contributing to the devaluation of black people by saying this is okay, that this is a form of entertainment, that human life doesn't value intervention in saying this is wrong and we need to not do this to black people. In the same way on the right with Derek Chauvin, we know that there were many onlookers who did not intervene, including four other police officers who did not intervene in stopping their fellow police officer from killing George Floyd. So this is not new. This is not new. That photo to the left took place over 100 years ago. That photo to the right took place last year. Not that much time has passed and not that much behavior has changed. And we have got to recognize that if we're truly going to move forward and progress as a society and start valuing black people even more. Is that we can't say, oh, that was just a past and it doesn't exist. It exists today and we've got to intervene. So part of that intervention has been what black people have done as far as advocating for our civil rights. So on the left, you have the civil rights movement that took place in the 60s, and on the right, you have the founders of Black Lives Matter. We have always stood on the shoulders of amazing black women who have, who have intervened on behalf of all of human history for rights. Black women have been in the central of women's suffrage. They've been in the central of the civil rights movement, and they are also at the center of the Black Lives Matter movement. And we have always, advocated for our rights in a variety of different ways. 
and people have always said you shouldn't necessarily do that. Why? Why shouldn't we intervene in a place that requires intervention on behalf of ourselves? But once again, it's about who's being centered. So when the civil rights movement was occurring, we were centering our black voices and saying, we deserve the same equality as everybody else. And we were met with fire hoses. We were met with bombings. We were met with to being told that that was the wrong way to do this. In today's day and age, as Black Lives Matter, we're still doing protest. We're still calling for the end of segregation and for the end of the devaluation of black people. Continuously being met with similar calls for what we're doing is wrong and violence, just for advocating for our equality. So once again, not much has changed. Maybe our tactics have changed just a bit because we're now utilizing technology and the amazing advancements that we have as our society, but we're still calling for the same things in the civil rights movement that we are as Black Lives Matter. So I'm hoping this history shows you is that this has been slow and we need to quicken the progression of the valuation of black people and Black Lives Matter is a part of that and you can also be a part of that because you have to take responsibility for your actions and your complicity in this system because silence is violence and silence is also complicity. And Black Lives Matter is here to be a part of that intervention. So when people talk about Black Lives Matter, they mention a lot of different things and I wanna make it very, very clear what Black Lives Matter is and is not. For me, Black Lives Matter is for fundamental things. It started out as a hashtag. In 2012, when the hashtag was created, it was created to respond to the murder of Trayvon Martin and to remind black people that we inherently matter. Even with a criminal justice system that, devalue, that devalues us, a governmental system that often devalues us, and many other systems that devalue us, Black Lives Matter was a clearing call to say we fundamentally matter and to remind ourselves of that. It is also a simple declarative statement. Black lives matter, period. There's no and, there's no but, there's nothing else that comes after that statement. We're doing that once again to declare that our lives matter in a world and in a system that hasn't always valued us. And we're making it very, very clear that our lives matter and we're gonna do the things to ensure that our lives and the subsequent lives of black lives in the United States and all of the world are going to matter. It is also an organization. It is an organization that does not operate under, typical, under traditional organizational structures because once again, those traditional organizational structures were often created not with us in mind. So there is a Black Lives Matter national organization, but not all Black Lives Matter chapters are part of that national organization, and that is with intention, because we don't wait for a national organization to dictate to us what can be done in our local communities. We want to function in the best way for our local communities because we are here on the ground. So you will see multiple Black Lives Matter chapters within a given city, 
here in the city of Houston, we do have multiple Black Lives Matter chapters. We also have Black Lives Matter chapters in the Woodlands, in Pearland, in League City, in Galveston County, because we work collectively together on all the different issues that we all collectively face, but we also face the independent issues that we see within our communities. And we work effectively on the ground to address those issues. So often people will say, oh, I don't know who to donate. I always say, donate to those who are doing the work that you believe in. So donate to your local Black Lives Matter organizations. If you support the work of the national organizations, feel free to do that. But once again, ask the questions because this is not gonna look like the normal situation because it needs not to look like that because the normal situations haven't had black people in mind. So therefore the solution needs to have black people in mind and needs to be different. And that's why this organization functions and operates in a very different way, but that doesn't delegitimize it. And then finally, Black Lives Matter is a movement. What I mean by that is that this is continuous. This is not just about one moment, one case, and we're done. Many people feel that what happened in the Derek Chauvin trial was justice. That was not justice. That was accountability. Justice would be that George Floyd would still be with us. Justice would be a change to the criminal justice system. Justice would be a change to the valuation of black life, which would have ensured that George Floyd would still be here. That is justice. That is what we are seeking. So we need to be very clear that just because we get accountability in one sense, the work is not done. And we also have got to address all the various issues that go along with the devaluation of black life. And that can be food insecurity. That could be economic injustices, educational inequalities, and all the other systems that disproportionately have a negative impact on black life. So as a movement and as an organization, we are working collectively to address all these issues so that we get to justice and that we get to an equal valuation. So I bring this up because many people get confused about the phrase Black Lives Matter and also the phrase All Lives Matter. I'm hoping this cartoon and my explanation will demonstrate to you why you should never, ever say the phrase All Lives Matter. In the first panel, you see a black woman raising a flag that says Black Lives Matter. Then you see a white man to the side being curious about that. He comes in with his, with his banner saying all lives matter and he says, no, all lives matter, you hear me, all lives. In seeing this, a woman comes in and she says, oh, thank God I'm fleeing a war zone. And he clearly says, no Muslims allowed or can't you read? The phrase all lives matter was created to delegitimize Black Lives Matter. It was never created with the intention of being inclusive. It was created to once again center those who have always been centered in our society and in this world of the United States of America, and that has been property-owning white men. So when I say Black Lives Matter, I am talking about the valuation of black life, and it isn't devaluing or delegitimizing anyone else from saying that their lives matter. So, Think about the origin and the creation of that phrase because it was not created with centering all of us. So please never use the phrase all lives matter because 
the origin of it is about devaluation. And once again, remember, me saying Black Lives Matter does not impact me or anyone else saying that your life does not matter. And then you will see many of us say all Black Lives Matter. When we say that, we're once again being fully inclusive of everyone who is a part of the black community. And that is all genders, all sexual orientations, all socioeconomic backgrounds. We are talking about all of our lives because we all deal with the same devaluation regardless of the other aspects of our identity. When I go out into the world, the world sees me as a black man first and foremost before they see my sexual orientation, before they see my gender identity. But we also have a horrible devaluation of our black trans community to the point that the average age of a black trans person is 35. We have got to be concerned about the valuation of all of us as black people because once again, the world devalues all of us. So even within our communities, we can't contribute to our devaluation by saying when we talk about this movement, we're only talking about cisgendered heterosexual individuals. When we say all black lives, we mean all black lives. Intersectionality is such an important part of this work and this is where we move from being an ally to an accomplice. It is an amazing phrase that was coined by a black woman, Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, who is an amazing legal scholar. And she came up with the term to explain the experience of intersecting identities and intersecting oppressions. So when we come into any space and in this world, we are all of our identities. Not one gets turned off or negated by the other. All of them are equally as important and they all have their own unique of oppressions. But all of our oppressions are still connected. They may be unique, but they're all connected. So individuals who come from different religious backgrounds may face religious persecution. That will be different and unique compared to those of us who experience racial injustice. But it all goes back to the same fact of oppression and all comes back to who is being centered and whose life is being valued and devalued. So if we're moving away from an allyship to a more of accompliceship, it is because of the fact that we understand and respect intersectionality. We understand that my life and all of my intersections matter and should, be, and should matter in the same way that all of Wayne's intersections should matter, in the same way that all of Bill's intersections should matter, in the same way that you and all of your neighbors should also intersect and matter to each other. So if we truly value intersectionality, we value the fact that we should all receive the same equality, the same access to all the goodness that the world has to offer simply because we are human beings. And that yes, we are going to have our own unique struggles and oppressions and they should be understood and respected. But at the same time, we have got to care about each other and try to end oppression at every single stage. So I encourage you to understand intersectionality and understand how the uniqueness of each of us is very, very important and should be valued. And that our unique issues should also be addressed, but they never come at the expense of someone else. So you've heard me use the phrase allies and accomplices. So let me make it, make it very clear what I mean by one and moving from the other. So allies are very vocal against the problematic existence of certain types of oppression. Allies are very passive. They say that they're in support 
And that's kind of where it ends. As I often like to say, your allies are going to be those who go to the protests, they take a selfie, put it on social media, and say they've done their good job for the day. And that's about it. We can't be passive anymore. The great Angela Davis says that it is not enough for us to just simply not be racist. We have to be anti-racist. The reason that there's a difference is because there's a passiveness that comes from just being an ally and just merely saying that you're not racist. There's an action involved in anti-racism and being an accomplice. Accomplices do the work of unlearning, actively combating, and leveraging privilege against oppression. These are the individuals who, when they go to a protest, if they see that the cops are in front, they're going to put their bodies in between the marginalized and the cops because they know the cops are going to treat them differently because of their white privilege, because of their socioeconomic privilege, because of all the privileges that have said that this person matters and is valued more so than that marginalized person. So in this day and age, we need more and more people to be active, to speak out against, to put themselves in that place, in that space where they're using their privilege to combat oppression. Going back to the other image that we saw at the beginning, this would be the individual who, when a lynching is starting, is going to confront the white individuals who are engaging in it and saying, this is wrong and is going to prevent that black person from being harmed. And when it comes to George Floyd, this could have been any number of individuals from the cops and the onlookers going in and pushing Jer Derek Chauvin off of his neck to intervene and say, this is wrong. So we can no longer just simply be allies and say, this is wrong. We've got to actively do things in all of our communities, in all of our places and spaces to intervene and be accomplices with communities that are marginalized. So what can you do? What I tell people is, and this is for individuals who come from those positions of privilege, first and foremost, listen, listen, listen. Listen to those individuals who come from marginalized backgrounds. Listen and learn from their experiences. Because when you listen, you are participating in the valuation of someone because you're listening to their experiences, taking what you learn from that and improving the ways that you interact with each other. Because when we listen to each other, when we learn from each other, we're valuing each other and it makes it way harder for us to just simply say, that's not for me or I don't care about that person. For non-black people, you have to have conversations and educate your, your fellow non-black people. As I often like to say, I am not your diversity textbook unless I volunteer myself, but also because you're a non-black person, you're gonna have an access and an ability in places and spaces that I will not have access to. So it's important that you engage yourself as an accomplice to have those uncomfortable conversations and to speak to fellow people about why we have to value black people and why we have to change these systems to be more equitable for everybody. Advocate, raise your voice. A big part of what we do is direct people to who to actually be mad at. So if things are a city issue, that means we're going to city council. If things are a county issue, we're going to the county commissioner. If things are wrong at the state level, we are going to the Texas legislature. We are in the Texas legislature right now because there's a lot of things that are going wrong there. And so many more people are going to be marginalized after this session 
And that's why we got to take all of our friends and all of us to advocate for each other because it's me today, it could be you tomorrow. Don't wait for a charismatic leader. You are the leader. So if you see something that is going on in your community in any level and you want it changed, you are empowered to make that change. Use your voice, advocate, get your fellow individuals and community active, uh, members actively involved and be the change that you want to see. You don't have to wait for a charismatic person. Don't co-opt. What I mean by that is if movements are being led by marginalized people, let them lead. Don't come in and say, I know how to do it better. You can offer your suggestions, but don't co-opt because it should be led and the voices of those that are the most impacted should be the ones that are leading and speaking. You're there to be that active support. But above all, and the biggest thing that I want you to leave from this is you have to intervene. White silence is complicity. White silence is death. And as Wayne mentioned at the beginning of this, racism is a problem that white people created. So you've got to be the solution to fixing this problem. And that requires direct intervention. If we're really gonna go back to fully valuing each and every other, each and every one of us, and if we're gonna fully value black people. So intervene, you can no longer be silent. And that is everywhere, in your job, in your communities, in this city, in this state, in this country. You have to intervene and, can't no, and can no longer be silent. So this is my wonderful contact information. If you ever want to contact me, I'm always open and willing to engage in dialogue with people about a variety of different issues. You can reach me through social media at the Brandon Mac on Twitter and IG. You're all, we always collaborate with individuals, communities, and organizations through Black Lives Matter Houston. Our email is blmhou at gmail.com. My personal email, brandon.d.mac at gmail.com. Once again, I volunteer myself as tribute, so to speak, to engage in dialogues and to talk with people about a variety of different issues. And then you can always follow us at uh, www.blmhouston.com. And with that, let's have some questions and dialogue. Brandon, thank you very much. Uh, and as a matter of fact, we do have a few questions that have rolled across. Right on. So we'll begin with, um, it has been said that white people shouldn't be asking black people how to solve the issues of racism. Why is it? The reason being is because, once again, racism is a situation and a system that white people created. So, for example, when we think about the system of government as it was created, our quote-unquote founding fathers, when they created the United States of America, they did not create it with black people in mind and enfranchising black people. So inherently, they created a system that created racism. So therefore, we can be asked our thoughts about it, but once again, we don't unfortunately have access to the means of control and to the, the central means of being able to dismantle the system. So that's why it has got to be a white project with the support and guidance of black people, but it's gotta be done by white people because they created the system. So hence, if you created it, you gotta dismantle it. Great. Uh, another question that came in is, what is CIS gender privilege? Sure. 
So cisgender privilege. So cisgender privilege means that you identify with the gender that you were born with. So for example, I was born male and I identify with being male. So that means cisgender privilege. Transgender individuals were born, um, were, were born their particular gender, but they don't self-identify with that gender and generally are either non-binary, meaning that they don't conform to male or female gender, or they have transitioned their gender and are now transgendered. So once again, those of us who were born and identify with the gender that we were born with, we have a certain privilege level because of the fact that the world sees us automatically as our gender and we don't have to engage in that kind of questioning or responding related to gender that trans and non-binary individuals have to have to deal with. Great. All right. How should I respond to my white friends who say all lives matter? Great question. Great question. The way that you do that is if they say that, quickly respond with that phrase can't exist until black lives matter. So I always like to say, all lives can't matter until black lives matter. Because a lot of people will say that and it's like, prove how do black lives actually matter if we're still seeing disproportionate rates of black people being killed by the police, disproportionate uh, sentencing amongst black individuals, educational inequalities where black and brown schools are getting less funding and less resources than predominantly white uh, schools. And we're also continuously seeing the treatment of black people being very different. I take you back to January 6th. January 6th and the insurrection at the Capitol, if that was a Black Lives Matter rally, we would not have even made it to the steps of the Capitol. White individuals were actually able to go into that building and were actually escorted in by police officers. So that right there, once again, just illustrates that there is a fundamental devaluation that happens that also leads to the different treatment between black and white people. So whenever you hear that phrase, once again, all lives matter can't exist until black lives matter. I have a white friend that says, um, I'm not a racist because racists are they're bad, they're mean, they, they are discriminating against you as a black person. Uh, how do I address that? So the thing is, is that it's the system that you're not challenging. And with you not challenging, you're taking all the benefits of that, and that's what fosters racism. So I know a lot of people like to say, oh, racists are the ones who wear the KKK hoods, they're the ones who are saying racist epithets. Yes, that is one form of racism. But also, if you're not challenging that, your silence is contributing to that being thought of as being okay. If you are benefiting from white privilege in the fact that you get socioeconomic benefits inherently because of who you are, the fact that we see disproportionate amounts in terms of the economic system of how much people get paid and it's along racial lines, that inherently tells you that we have a devaluation problem. And if you're not challenging that, you're contributing to the system that says that is okay. So that's the reason for why, even though you may not engage in overt racism, you could be engaging in covert racism through your silence and complicity of furthering that system by not speaking out. Um, America 
is a place of individualism and meritocracy. We like to think. That's what we like to think. So what's the deal with me having to do something about you? The thing about that is America has a debt to pay to black people. And it is well past due. Black people built this country in terms of our slave labor from our ancestors that they never got paid for and that they never got acknowledged for. And white individuals have benefited from that for generation upon generations. So you would like to believe that, oh, you built your wealth, but then if you go back and look at your history, your wealth was generated by the hard work of black people who did not get a chance to say, I wanted to contribute to this and who had to do so out of survival. So that's the reason for why there has to be that intervention because I already, and my family members and my ancestors already intervened for the benefit of white people and we never got any benefit from that. So now it's time to pay that bill. So that's why we have to care and do intervention work now because we already did all that work beforehand. How important is it for me or any white person to develop relationships with black people over and above? Hey, I know you work. Hey, right. I, I know I know black people, uh, uh, or other casual encounters. Sure, I fundamentally believe that we all need to get to know each other, and it's not for performativeness. You know that standard. Oh, I have a black friend. Then we become your shield from racism or things of that nature. That's not our job. You get to know other people because when you get to know other people, that is how we value each other. That is how we learn humanity because we've learned from each other. So that's why it's so important that we all get out into different communities to learn from each other. Because you can read about things in a textbook, in a book, and that's one way of getting education. But lived experience is so important. And that happens through us interacting with each other. So one thing that I try to do is I try to intentionally go into different communities to get to know other people. And once again, it isn't for performative value. It is because this is my way of getting to know other people and in that valuing their experiences, valuing their struggles. So that when I am advocating for better treatment of black people, I'm also advocating for the better treatment of immigrant communities because I've been in immigrant communities, for different religious communities because I've been in those different religious communities, and then they start valuing me because they get to know me. So when us getting to know each other, it makes it harder for us to devalue each other. So that's why it's, it's important that, especially white individuals, because it can be very easy for us to just be separated into communities and stay there, you got to intentionally disrupt that, which is going into communities and leaving yourself open to learning from each other. And once again, it's not for performativeness, right? It is really an authentic authenticity. And one big thing I want to remind everybody, we're all going to mess up. We're all going to mess up when it comes to interacting with each other. It's okay to mess up. The problem comes in is your response to messing up. So, for example, Sharon Osborne, who I tell everybody, don't be a Sharon. Please don't be a Sharon. She messed up in the fact that she demanded education. She demanded for a black person not to respond 
and basically was privileging and centering herself when in that moment she could have been empathetic and asked questions. Ask, hey, I don't understand, but I'm not going to be defensive about it. I'm just really authentically trying to learn. Because, for example, when you misgender somebody, you ask, how would you want to be uh, addressed? So that way you're learning how to interact with them and you apologize. But if you end up being defensive, you're centering yourself and you're also closing yourself off from education and saying, my feelings and my centeredness matters way more than your life. So be okay with being uncomfortable and being okay with learning. And that also means being okay with messing up. Because if you genuinely come at it with a spirit of being open and apologetic, we're all on that journey and we will understand and respect that. But when you basically tell me I don't have a right to feel bad about someone misrepresenting who I am, you're basically saying it's okay to devalue me. So it's necessary component of our relationship, for example, for me to acknowledge that I've made you feel uncomfortable. Oh, no, exactly. But you haven't made me feel uncomfortable. So there you go. Yeah. But Perhaps. it's a possibility, right? Yeah. And then if I say, hey, you made me feel uncomfortable, you just acknowledge I, I accept and receive that. I'm going to try my best to do better. Hey, we're good, right? The key problem would be is if I said, you know, you made me feel uncomfortable and you're like, get over it. I'm defensive. Or right. Then that's where it's like, okay, that can't grow in any way, right? But if you acknowledge and respect where each, where each of us are coming from, that can lead to growth. That can lead to the development of a relationship, right? Rather than just saying, oh, no, I privilege my own comfortability at the expense of, your, of you. I have one, uh, Brandon. You mentioned intersectionality. Yes. Um, I, I judge that for white people do not generally recognize that they are an intersection of mm -hmm. a variety of things that yes. they're mostly white. So uh, yet a white person will come along and say, I'm not a racist because I've traveled extensively right. overseas. I've, I, uh, I work with a whole lot of black people, right. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the biggest one I often hear is because they grew up um, socioeconomically poor, they therefore cannot be. I've also heard that a lot. So that's not still accurate, though, because Correct. the white intersection is, is what really defines who I am. Exactly, because of the fact that you still are benefiting from a system that is privileging your whiteness over everything else even if you have these other intersections, the racism problem still exists. Mm -hmm. And so the other parts don't erase who you are. They're all a part of who you are. But at the same time, unless you are actively challenging the system of race in this country, you are then once again being silent, which therefore can make you complicit and could also make you be engaging in covert racism. So like, for example, if you're in a workplace and you see that there are work policies that are going to definitely negatively impact black and brown people more so than you, if you don't say anything, you're being complicit in that and can engage in covert racism as such. Like, for example, when we think of professional standards, 
who's at the center of those quote unquote professional standards? Genuinely, those were created with white individuals in mind and don't take uh, and don't consider black culture and the uniqueness of that, but I'm still acting in a professional manner. My hair may just be different, but then there are these policies at the workplace that say, oh, your hair can't be this way, that way, and, and this way, but no one else is saying anything because they're not you know, being negatively impacted by that, but I have to operate in that system. But yet it has nothing to do or takes away from my ability to do the job. Well, in that vein, um, are inclusivity programs uh, really just papering over the fact that we're not really doing anything about racism? Well, we'll be in, it will be inclusive here. We'll... Uh, so for me, inclusivity plan—I mean, inclusivity programs are good for the education. It's about the actions that come as a result of that. So are you taking what you've learned from those inclusivity programs and implementing it into changes in the policy? Are you implementing it to changing the culture of that particular space to being more inclusive and enabling people to be able to, you know, be and breathe within that space? So I'm glad that people are engaging in those programs from an educational aspect. To me, the thing is, is the action part that is so needed. What actions are being done and developed and carried out as a result of that education? Good. Will voter suppression succeed? And I will add on to that. And the question is, are you hopeful? And I will add on to that. What needs to be done if sure. it does succeed? Right now, voter suppression is trying to succeed because there are a variety of bills all around the United States, but also here specifically in Texas, that are trying to suppress the black and brown vote. And part of it that will succeed is because of the fact that it is not getting the attention it deserves, and that is also by design. Because then if it's not getting attention, then it's easy for it to pass and for it to easily be implemented. What will make it harder is if more and more white individuals, more and more individuals who are in, in political power intervene and prevent this from happening. So, for example, why is the Texas legislature against 24-hour voting if we're able to implement it? Why are they against same-day registration? Why are they thinking that there's a need for an additional card to be done? All those things prevent those who need more access to vote from voting. And what we need for that to happen is more attention and more people to raise and tell their legislative officials, we don't want voter suppression. We want greater access to voting. So I am confident that we're going to get there for more and more of uh, us and hopefully more and more of you getting into this fight to disrupt this and intervene. But if we don't say anything, the disenfranchisement is going to continue. I'll close with this question, Brandon. History is replete with examples of the oppressed becoming the oppressor. Yep. Uh, how is that paradigm to be avoided? That paradigm is to be avoided by us actually learning and internalizing and acting upon the lessons. So one of the reasons for why I had history lessons as part of this presentation is because of that replication. 
what has been missing is the intervention and the continuous intervention. So my hope is, is that we're at this point where we're saying enough is enough and that black people are advocating and fighting for our rights more so and we don't have that fear that we had several years ago. That we're having more intersectionality and more individuals being a part of this fight that is also intervening in a different way that it hasn't had before. So that's the difference for me, is that the intervention and the continuous intervention is what's going to lead to us not repeating the same behaviors. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you. So I'm going to walk back between you guys. Brandon, thank you so much for thank being you. here. And thank you for getting him here. You're very articulate. Thank you. And um, I have a request. Go for it. Will you send me the PDF, a PDF of your slideshow? Yes. And that way I can put it on the summary that will go out on Tuesday morning. Um, and you'll have a chance to see the slides that uh, Brandon showed today. And we did record this, of course, audio and video, and it will be on the website Tuesday morning as well. And uh, I hope you come back. Oh, always, always. And thank you so much for everyone who is watching this. Please continue to educate yourself and also intervene because that's what we need to move away from allyship and more towards being accomplishment, uh, to accomplish it so we can dismantle systemic oppression. You know, Brendan, the, the, I think, not the first book I read, but one of the most powerful books I read on this topic was written by Michael Dyson mm -hmm. called Sermon to White America. Do you yes. know that book? I do know that book and highly recommend it. You know, I could not read it straight through. I had to stop and because it's so painful. Mm -hmm. There's a lot in it that people need to know, but a colleague of mine in Austin recommended it to me, and I got it and started reading it, and uh, then I've seen him on TV a couple mm -hmm. of times. He's very articulate, yes. too. He's a great, great historian. And if I may also make a book recommendation that I have been reading, it's called White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. It's by Robin J. D'Angelo. Mm -hmm. um, it for me, it has uh, interrupted my thought process of what a, uh, an objective, clear-thinking person that I really am and has is, is opened up uh, a new way of thinking about how I was brought up and what I assume to be true. And I'd highly recommend that. There is a documentary that I think you can get either on Netflix or uh, Amazon called I'm Not Your Negro. Yes, about James Baldwin. James Baldwin. Um, James Baldwin, I think Holly considers James Baldwin her muse. She reads him and quotes him almost Same every here. week. Every week. Beautiful, beautiful articulate man in, in his writing who said nothing, can, help me on the quote, nothing can be changed that is not nothing can nothing can change unless you face it is basically the basically quote, but yeah right and we've got we got to face some stuff yes so next sunday uh wayne herbert and i are going to dialogue i think we should rehearse possibly probably talk some about what we're going to do <laughs> talk about that uh, journey of the last number of years um two weeks from now holly and i will be back for the last um, just live stream only broadcast that we will do. And uh, we tentatively call that time, that was the year that was. Um, 
we're going to be reflecting over what's happened the last 15 months when we started out thinking, oh, wow, we're only going to do this for three or four weeks. But it turned out to be a long time. And then the Sunday after that will be the first Sunday in June. And we will begin together in person. And as I said, the, the plans are probably going to be very different from what you have been reading uh, on the Ordinary Life website. At any rate, no matter who you are, no matter where you go this week, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step.